<laughs> I'm going to assume the meet and greet is easier than maybe hearing the message, perhaps. <laughs> maybe we need more time for meet and greet and less time for the message, but uh, that would be a different church. I'll make sure that doesn't happen. I did not bring my glasses this morning, so this will be fun to watch me squint and strain and do all the weird things that... It, but you know what? It's a baptism Sunday. Oh, yeah, no, thanks. The last thing I want to do is wear someone else's glasses. I've done that before, too. That really could create a conundrum. It's, it's okay. I think I'm going to be fine. I think I know the message well enough to... Oh, no, here comes my lovely daughter bringing glasses. Okay, thank you, Dallas. Thank you, honey. Thank you, honey. Um, I am definitely excited. Whenever baptism is even mentioned, like I am definitely one of those people that loves baptism. I think a, a salvation testimony is just so exciting. And so I knew there was going to be a lot of turmoil, spiritually speaking, this week. And it didn't let down, right? There was a lot of stuff. And a couple of the people came in, and then there was some trauma, and God kind of pulled away one. And I was, I was praying for people, and then we rallied back, and we had two down. And then, as you guys know, I kept telling you guys about the family, right? We'll just call them the family uh, for now. And the family came in, and I don't see the family here this morning, so the family didn't make it. And the family kind of got into one of those scenarios during counseling and during the baptism class that the struggle is real, guys. The struggle to profess, to stand up here and just give your testimony about who God is and what he's done for you and get to that 500-gallon aquarium and take that small little moment and be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That moment is so tangible in that office when you're trying to walk someone through. And so all I can tell you guys is for my prayer warriors out there, just keep the family in prayer. I mean, they... They are so torn, like a family torn, literally between mom and dad wanting to do it, and, and now the son, who was the actual scenario and the, and the actual conversion of the whole family, is kind of pulling back. And uh, I just, you know, I, I'm torn between the amazing stories that you guys are going to hear at the end of the service, and, and the reality is that there's other people out there that right now, like for them, faith is full-blown in action this morning. Wherever they are, whatever they're doing, they know kind of where they're supposed to be and what's supposed to be happening. And so it's just going to be a real strain for them this morning. And so I just pray mercy with, for them as I do for you guys. And I also want to just thank you guys for being here and supporting. I mean, it's a lot of stuff going on in the taco truck afterwards. I mean, you're already probably distracted. I'm one of those people where you say chips and salsa or tacos. And sometimes you're... So I'll do everything I can to not go deep today. Uh, I wrote 2,000 words, so based on time, it should be 30 minutes or less, but you never know with me. I do have a tendency to just trust God, but uh, we're finishing up chapter 4 by, on design here. I think the story of chapter 4 kind of then leads into the front part of chapter 5, and it's in a really amazing account of what's happening. I mean, the book of Acts is so powerful because it's basically like an eyewitness to the birth of the church. And so since we weren't there, and since we don't know how we got to this point today, we know we're here today, but why we're here today is exclusively tied to this first community of believers. And this week, as I got a chance to prepare it, I even got a new computer, and thank you, Mark, up there for helping me get a new computer, and I thought all my stuff would be wiped out and I wouldn't be able to do it. Instead, I got new software, which my antiquated software was so bad. I was actually probably working against myself with the old stuff. The new stuff is so good, and I was so excited to write it down. 
It was easier to write in the sense of having good equipment that actually worked. I didn't know they had keyboards that had like springs in them and they punch back. So it could help you. I, I'm a chicken pecker, right? I don't type fast, but I type from like three words a minute to like 6.7 words a minute, which was almost a doubling. So it only took like 87 hours to finish this week. So I'm really blessed by the time constraint. No, I'm serious. It's, it's all going good. And I know that you guys got a bunch of stuff going on. And I hope you're excited to hear what's happening today. Like I said, we'll finish chapter four. We're going to do the front 10 verses of chapter five. Then we're going to have a couple of testimonies come up here. Then we're heading for the tank. And then we're going to go across the street and jump on those tacos. I know that God is doing something good because when I got a chance to write down the message this week, the realization of how the church started actually goes back to when Jesus first started recruiting. You know, before Jesus first recruited, you know what Jesus actually did? Do you remember what Jesus did before he went out and started gathering the first guys? He was baptized. See, baptism is one of those powerful things that kind of just announces to the world this idea of commissioning. And so Jesus himself had that opportunity to go to John the baptizer. And John the baptizer had been telling them the whole time, someday this guy's going to come who I'm not going to be worthy to tie his shoes, right? And then that opportunity comes where John looks up and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And what does Jesus ask of John to baptize him? And John's like, I can't believe you're asking me to baptize you. Beautiful picture of Jesus being baptized as Jesus himself is being baptized, the dove above him, right, representing the Holy Spirit present, and then Jesus' father speaking from heaven. What an incredible opportunity. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And I'm sure that that same feeling will be felt today for those people that are going to be making that same profession of faith for Jesus. But then he goes about gathering. He starts out with Philip and Andrew and two and three and then four and then he gathers some guys by the lake and he stays by the lake and six and then eight and then nine and then ten and then the magic number 12. He gathers these first 12 and he tells these guys, I'm going to teach you guys something different. I know that you guys all have trades, you all have crafts, things that you understand, but I'm going to teach you something different. For you fishermen, I'm going to teach you how to be fishers of men. And from that initial 12, we see the next gathering the Bible records in Luke 10, that there's about 70 or maybe 72 initial believers. And this early church, this early movement, it's got some momentum. I love the fact that after Jesus is buried and risen, he comes back from the resurrection, he spends some time on this planet. But it talks about how many people he went and talked to. It says that he appeared to over 500 people. I can only imagine that from that initial 170, 120, from 72 to 120, there's probably about 500 people that are actually following Jesus, and he needs to see them and reaffirm what's going to happen. And then when Peter gets a chance to speak in that first opportunity in Acts, 3,000 people come to Christ. And now last week with the the lame man being healed, another 5,000 come. Those accounts are always counting the men, and so when we add in women and children, we're looking at a church now that's about 15 to 20,000 strong. And for those of you who know about modern-day church growth, this is pretty amazing when you think about it. No banners, no radio ads, no bulletins, right? No telling your friends through the internet or Facebook channels. This is just God moving in the church, and the Holy Spirit is cooking. I mean, everything they do is coming up gold. And as chapter 4 ends, it looks like it's just a continuation of it. They're going to talk about the idea that when people are in need, they're figuring out every single possible way to take care of the needs. And I couldn't help but think about this. The perfect example of when everything seems right is newlyweds, right? How many of you guys remember that a newlywed moment in your life when someone told you you get to combine your accounts, combine all your stuff, and everything is going to be good, and you're going to conquer the world together, right? 
No, some of you never experienced that? Okay, well, let me share with you what happens. I was in college. I was a grand total of 19, and my beloved was 18. And the beautiful thing was she was working. She had these amazing jelly bean checks. On top of the checks were an actual banking account with money in it. It was fabulous. $1,000 in my girlfriend's account. I had $32. And I knew that if we could just come together and God could keep blessing with that, every one of our problems would be solved, right? Dad had me on a very tight leash, 300 bucks a month for school, for books, for everything. This girl was cranking it. She was working and going to school, money in the bank, and a Chevy Love truck. Woo. I had a Datsun B210. Things weren't looking up for me with a B210 at school. I can tell you right now, it was tough times, right? We combined everything into this date. That was the end of her contribution. I have been, I have been contributing ever since then, and 38 years later, those jelly bean checks are far in the past but I still won the lottery, honey, with you. And, uh, but you know what? Thank you. Yeah. It's just, it feels so ethereal. And chapter four feels so ethereal. Everyone having needs and people, wait till you get the chance to read. Everyone has needs and people are going to see the needs and wait till you see what they do. But is it always like that? Is that really the truth and the whole truth? So help us, God. Well, I'm about to pray, and we're about to jump into it. So join me, if you would, in prayer, and then we'll get ready to turn to chapter 4, and we'll finish up the chapter and find out what the church did when it saw a need. Father God, I thank you for the morning. I thank you for the opportunity to see good in everything. I mean, this account this morning is so powerful because for some people, it seems harsh. For some people, it's going to seem that you kind of overcooked the situation, and maybe you did too much. But the reality of every situation that's been recorded in the Bible, Father, is that everything has been done for a reason, and that all these things that have been done all are for the glory of God. So I pray that this morning, as we read this powerful account of this first church who's not only doing it so well, but also going to experience their first trial, Father, I pray that we too would realize to learn from those who have gone before us, to appreciate the fact of what has been given and when great has been given, Father, great is expected. And you are a loving, kind, and merciful God. That is absolutely true. But you are also 100% holy and pure. Father, may everything we say and do this morning bring honor and glory to and through your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So I will read now with my glasses. And we will finish up chapter 4. This is the last part. This is only four verses, 32 through 36. And we'll see how the church continues to just baffle us with amazing and powerfully good things. And the congregation of those who believe, so this is kind of the first um, information that the church is actually forming, the ecclesia, the church, the congregation of those who believed, were of one heart and one soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. Please notice all as it continues to be read throughout this. For there wasn't a needy person among them, for all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and then bring the proceeds of the sales. Now that's the entirety of the proceeds of the sales, and lay them at the apostles' feet. And then the apostles would distribute them to each to the extent they had need. Now Joseph, a Levite, a Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas, which translated means son of encouragement, owned a tract of land, so he sold it, and he brought the money and laid it all at the apostles' feet. Now this is truly an incredible account, because what it's saying is the church is seeing needs, okay, and then it's not just talking about it or just praying about it, it's addressing the needs. 
Now, the reason why they're seeing these, remember, if you were a Jew and you made a profession of faith to be a follower of Christ, the chances were pretty likely that your family would disown you, right? So for every new convert they have, they also have a new homeless person, right? So the conundrum of what to do if something happens is kind of already overwhelming. They have a lot of people, even at Pentecost, that first group that has come to the Lord, these people can't go back to their old lives. A lot of the times there's nowhere to go back. So from the very beginning, this idea of dealing with people in transitional housing has been part of who the church is and part of what the church did. But for them, they decided from the very beginning, okay, we have stuff, let's hold whatever we have in common, okay? Now this is a pretty, this is pretty ethereal stuff. I mean, today, can you imagine a church that tried to hold everything in common, right? We can't even hold the building sometimes in common. I mean, they, everyone has wants, wishes, and desires of what they want of the church and what they want of their stuff, but they, they did it. They figured out a way to hold it all in common. And when they did that, they had this attitude, the Bible says, the attitude or the attribute of a believer. Now, Matthew went on to write quite a bit about this. The attribute of a believer was one who was willing to use their possessions and return all those possessions back to the Lord for those who had no possessions. So it's never been something where maybe you'd say being uh, benevolent, okay, or altruistic, depending on how you look at it. A benevolent act is something you do and is known about. An altruistic act is something you do and it's unknown. But the idea of charitable giving or, or kind of having this opportunity to bless others has been part of the church from the very beginning, okay, because every believer was now homeless. For, for the most part, most of these believers were coming with a great price to be disowned or disavowed by their own family, and so how was the church accommodating this? They were just rallying. They were constantly rallying whatever people had. They were putting it into a pot and, and kind of making it available. And then they were trusting the apostles to delegate and kind of do the same thing, which is beautiful because if you look at the church today with elders and, and deacons and kind of how we do things, the same thing. We, whenever we have needs within the church, we're always trying to figure out how we can address them. It's a blessing to the church to be able to do that. And the results of this was... It says not one needy person was found. I mean, seriously, not one needy person. I mean, the church is 15 to 20,000 strong. We're a church of 150 to 250 people. And I can think about quite a bit of needs. And I can think about behind the scenes right now some of the needs that I'm working on with you guys and how beautiful it is that the church actually has funds and people that are willing to give so we can address them. But I mean, seriously, if we brought all the needs of the people together right now and said today we're going to try to address them what kind of pandemonium would that cause? But the reality for them, they were in one sink. It actually says they were in one heart and one mind. It's funny that this was the message this week, and a friend of mine who's a coach sent me a video. He sent me a video of the Oklahoma girls' softball team. They are one of the most powerful softball teams in the nation right now, and they had a chance to be interviewed. ESPN, right? A time for each one of the girls to just showcase their own skills and their own talents and whatever. And the question was, you guys are under a lot of scrutiny. You guys are under the spotlight. Every team wants to beat you. How do you guys keep smiling? How do you keep this attitude? And the first girl speaks, and she says, well, first of all, None of us feel like the game is what it's all about. We know that Jesus, I mean, she just goes straight into Jesus. I mean, starts with Jesus and just drives Jesus. I mean, she's in her full regalia, you know, softball gear. Coach says this and coach tells us this. Our life is not softball. Softball is simply a tool. I mean, just as, as beautiful as you could possibly imagine. And I'm driving down the road and I'm kind of like, oh my gosh. Then the second girl goes, oh, I don't jump in with Jeannie, whatever she said. I totally agree. Matter of fact, when we won the championship, I came on as a freshman, 
And one of the weirdest things was the day after the championship, I woke up and I had this empty void in my heart. And I was like, but we just won the national champion. And I'm at the best school in the nation for my sport, my trade, and what's going on? And so I went to the girls and they comforted me and they realized I didn't have Jesus in my heart. And man, when I made that profession of station, I got Jesus in my heart. I had a whole different perspective about what it means to me. And I'm like, man, they're talking salvation. They're talking Jesus. And it just went down the line. And I was just like, can you imagine what it means to be in one accord? And I text back to this other guy. I, I, coached, I coached for over 20 years. I coached my kids all the way through to college. I said, from one coach to another coach, I would love to shake that man's hand. I have no idea who the Oklahoma coach is, but I would love to shake that man's hand because it's one thing to teach someone a sport, right? But sport's going to come and go. It's another thing how to teach someone how to live, right? Because that's something you can use for the rest of your life. And I can't help but think about the early church. It sounds so incredible. They're, they're doing everything they're supposed to be doing, but but come on, selling your house, selling the land, I mean, isn't this your inheritance? It felt a little reckless in my earthly mind. It felt a little, like, wild and extreme. And I started to think about some of the songs we have, Reckless Love, right? No, the set of fire in my heart and all these different things. Like, Lord, isn't this reckless? Is there anything reckless about who you are? And then I finished reading the passage, and one of the commentaries said this. Turns out to be an interesting point. Many of the Jews who sold their homes did not realize that soon, due to the situation in their homeland, they would be moving and no longer would have needs of their home in Jerusalem anymore. <sighs> right? And once again, like, lean not into your own understanding. This whole idea, like when we're wrestling with God's word and we're hearing stuff like this, we're thinking what, what it means to us. And so somehow we want to use that interpretation of what it means to us to what it meant to God. And it had none of that meaning to God. See, God provides the stuff, and God can use the stuff. But does God need the stuff? No, he doesn't need the stuff, and he knew what they needed. What they needed was to come together because they're building the first church. And the foundation of this first church is something that's going to last forever. We know that because the Bible records the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Against what? The church right? And so what's happening so early on is super important. And so they needed to understand you didn't need your home anyways. What you needed to know is trust the Holy Spirit. In the end, if you haven't clearly understood what is the role of the Holy Spirit exclusively to help us understand, right? To, to expose truth. So when we're not seeing things clearly, we're probably not listening to the Holy Spirit. And when they did listen to the Holy Spirit, what did they find out? All of it was working out. All of it was going in the right direction. The church looks so good right now that if you just stopped at chapter 4, uh, verse 36, and said, okay, church, that's what we're going to go for, you'd really be setting people up for failure because the church is proficient. It doesn't seem to be having any major issues. And matter of fact, if it's close to anything, I would call it close to perfect. I mean, massive growth, massive potential, and just solving all kinds of problems. So when are we going to hear, as Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story, right? Remember I told you about in the beginning when you got married and it sounded so good and it was you against the world? But then all of a sudden one year into it, it was about a, one year into our lovely marriage where we realized it was Christmas and we had no money left, right? How do you deal with that first Christmas when you have no money left and nothing to sell, right? The rest of the story here starts in chapter 5. The rest of the story is it's not all going to be perfect. And one couple is going to see something in that beautiful passage that I just read. This guy Barnabas selling off his stuff and then bringing all of his stuff in and laying it down. Something must have happened with that, and they saw what happened with that. They must have saw Barnabas get some accolades or get some kind of attaboy or receive some kind of public acknowledgement in front of the body. And that became a draw or something of interest to them because what we're about to read in chapter 5 is a couple in the church 
I don't believe they're non-believers. I believe they're believers, and I'm going to explain that to you in a minute. But a couple sees that situation and then begins to kind of come up with this idea of what happens if we did that thing and then brought that to the church? What kind of results would that be for us? And the results of that is, starting in chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, the first recorded act of sin in the church. And it's not just like one of those minor sins. It's going to be a major sin. Matter of fact, if we were able to change the opening slide, it's what happens when you lie to God. And when you lie to God and the church is this young and the church is this formative, the the repercussions are not only going to be swift, but they're going to be extreme. And let me explain this to you and let's read through this and then hopefully you can see what I found in this, just how encouraging this actually is. Starting in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property Two, and they kept back some of the proceeds for themselves. I'm going to talk to you a little bit more about what that Greek word for kept back is. It's very specific. And he did this with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it now, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter then said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back some of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did you not remain your own? And after it was sold, did it not remain under your control? Then why is it you have conceived this deed in your heart? For you have not lied to men, but you have lied to God. Verse 5. And as he heard these words, Ananias collapsed and died. And great fear came over all who heard it. And the young men got up, and they covered him. And after carrying him out, they buried him. Now an interval of about three hours elapsed. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter now responds to her, Tell me whether you sold this land for this price? And she said, Yes, for this price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. Verse 10, And immediately she collapsed at his feet and died. And the young men came again and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all those who heard these things. Now, when you hear this passage, a lot of people want to jump to the conclusion that this is a passage about tithing. And this is a passage about either give it all to God or pay the consequences. And I can tell you right now, this passage has nothing to do with money. Okay, As I said to you in the beginning, let me just clarify If God is God, does God actually need money, or has he made money something available to us? God God does not need money. Not today, not tomorrow, not next week. He already owns the cattle on a thousand hills. In my father's house, there are many rooms, and what our father has is everything he needs. But what what God is trying to show and teach them here is much more important than just the attribute or spirit of tithing. What he's trying to teach them there is a value about who he is. Because just as God is fully kind, compassionate, and loving, God is also fully holy and pure. And so this whole issue needs to be reconciled to them because this is happening where? This event's probably taking place on a Sunday service. This is probably one of the first acts of a Sunday service. And so this is transpiring in front of everyone. Everyone's seeing this. They must have saw it before when Barnabas did it, and now they conspired to do it again. So when verse 1 starts with, but, that's not a good sign, right? 
Because what's happening there is it's going to talk about Ananias and Sapphira seeing something and then seeing it in a different light. The, the, the phrase kept some back. In Greek, it's actually very specific. It means to misappropriate. Okay? This is the first misappropriation of funds publicly recorded in the church. And it's on a monumental scale because traditionally, if you sold the property for $1,000 and you brought $100 in and you donated it to the church 2,000 years ago, that would have been a fabulous, fabulous thing, right? It was just a portion of what it was, and that's all it was. That was fine. But what the early church was doing wasn't that. What the early church was doing was all for one and all in, right? It was establishing the parameter that that's what they were doing. And so they made it seem like they were all in. But the reality was they weren't all in, and they conspired to be holding some of it back. To bring just a portion and lay it at the apostles' feet in and of itself was not some type of irreconcilable sin. But as we're going to go on to find out, in the end, they weren't just lying to Peter or to the church. They were lying to God. So when Ananias comes forward to receive what he felt was the righteousness that Barnabas had been given, he didn't get that. He not only didn't get that, but what he got from Peter was brutal. I'm sure he was hoping for Peter's speech to be something like, wow, Ananias, what a gift. The church thanks you. What a blessing you and your wife are and your family are. This is an amazing tithe. Thank you. In his mind. But the reality was when he walked up there, he heard the words, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, I don't know about you, but as a pastor, I don't really know that I've ever tried to evoke the name of Satan in doing some type of rebuke for someone. But I can imagine early on in the church, this is what Peter felt that the Spirit of God was telling him to say. But this is a pretty stern or harsh rebuke to the point that I'm sure just hearing that alone probably stopped him in his tracks. And the reality was everything that he thought was going to happen was now going to be something completely different. And as he continues on in this lesson to him, he's saying, why would you do this? Weren't you in control of the funds? He now has the opportunity to either speak truth or lie. And this is why I tell you, I, I still 100% convinced that Ananias and Sapphira are a believer because at some point he makes peace with the fact that he's caught. And he says, was it in your control the whole time? And he says, yes, it was. Well, then you've not only lied to me, you, but you have lied to God. And he establishes, this is kind of an interesting, the church is pretty early on, but Peter's actually establishing the Holy Spirit and God are one, right? Think about that for you people theology-based, you know, the, how the Trinity works. Here's an early rendering in the church on the very first actual issue the church faces, and Peter's rendering is, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit has a job. What is the job of the Holy Spirit? To bear the truth. So why is there only one unforgivable sin? Because we refute the truth. Is the unforgivable sin against God or Jesus? No, it's against the Holy Spirit. Because that's his job, the paraclete. Jesus said, I'm sending one to you. What is he going to do? He's going to walk alongside you. And what will be, why is this better than you being here? Because he's going to walk alongside every believer revealing the truth. For you to refuse what the truth is being told you, that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the way, Jesus is the truth. Make a vow and repent. To refuse that becomes then the unforgivable sin, the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right? He hears these words. The, by implication, he knows exactly what it is, 
and there's no time to discuss judgment. Okay, well, we'll make payments. Can we work something out? Nope, there's no time for that. In God's discernment, as chapter 5 explains, he breathes his last breath and drops dead. The young people in the church come forward, take him out, and it instantly has an opportunity to do what for the church? Is he trying to destroy the first 15 or 20,000 believers? No, he's trying to establish for the first 15 or 20,000 believers. That was pretty harsh what just happened to him. But I didn't say that Ananias wasn't a believer. And this is why I think that they are believers. I actually think that God, in some ways, showed mercy because hypocrisy would have cannibalized the church this early on. And so he removed two people that are going to be part of this plan for hypocrisy, this plan for defacing the church, this plan for lying to God, and he takes them home. In some ways, that's kind of merciful if you think about how death works, right? We're all going to die one day. How we die is up to the Lord anyways. He already knows exactly how that's going to be. But for him right now, this is a death that could help the church understand something. Loving, kind, merciful God? Yes, 100%. Holy and just God? Yes, 100%. And by the way, we're going to get to verse 14 and we're going to find out the results of this whole example of taking them home was not a destruction of the church. No, not even close. Find out very soon. Because the role of the Holy Spirit was such to blaspheme him, he said, no, it's not going to be like that. So this is the way that it has to be. Meanwhile, it says three hours later. So there's some excuse about how long a church service could be. I'm just saying. (laughs) Three hours later, he's still going, and no one's looking at their watch and texting their friend or whatever. And then three hours later, it says his wife came in. So there's probably some excuse for some of you about how late people have been coming to church. I guess they've been coming... To church late for quite some time, you know, not just after worship or after this. This is a long hairdo session for Sapphira or something, but she's coming in three hours later, and it says that she comes in not knowing. Now, I don't know about you, but if there was ever a time and a place where I think I would have rather have known, I would have rather have known, but the conversation that Peter's about to have with her is not going to beat around the bush or kind of delay what's inevitable. He knows what's inevitable, and so he goes straight to her, and he says, tell me. I can imagine this, right? She comes in late, and now she's going to think I'm getting, you know, yelled at for coming in late. No. Tell me, did you sell the land at this price? One question, right? Not why are you late and what are you doing? Nope, there's a problem in the church, and it's already been dealt with severely. He's ready to get it over with. And her response, yes, she responds, at that price. He knows now, He knows now, because it says in verse 9, he says, you know, the feet of the men who carried your husband away are right here, and the same outcome will behold you. And then I put this question. When it comes to trying to teach the church holiness and purity, is it appropriate for God to be harsh when disciplining us? Right? think about, but okay, why not? Well, because I want to I ask you this then. Why is it then the church of today seems to be a place where we're doing everything we can to welcome everybody under the pretense that all are welcome and everything kind of goes and we'll make everything kind of work because the most important thing is that you need to be here. Now, I'm not saying that everything doesn't go and we need people to be here. I think relative to a non-believer, yes, We need non-believers here. We need people that don't know that Jesus is the way and the truth. That's what makes the church come alive. 
But relative to believers, I think it's maybe take a deep breath here and say, relative to believers, was he trying to set the church up to be an easy place to go? Was he trying to set it up from the very beginning to be this soft kind of happy-go-lucky place where everything was ethereal and worked out? I don't think he was. I think he was saying, hey, rich young ruler, you need to go sell off everything you have, but, but this is who I am. Sell off everything I have, yeah, because that's who you are. I need you to become who I am. This is who I am. You need an outer garment, you need an inner garment, and you need a stick. Come follow me. I, would, I'm, I want to, but my, my father's ill, and I need to bury him. That sounds good too, but let the dead bury the dead. Come and follow me. See, the harshness of our God has to balance the holiness, right? Kindness, mercy, joy, love, absolutely, but 100% holy and just as well right? We have a limited time offer to present the good news of Jesus Christ to this world. And if we let any other distraction get in our way, okay, then harshness may be why we're not so focused on the urgency of the call of salvation today. Maybe today we're, we have a lot of other things that are urgent and things that we need to do. And I always say, Mary and Martha, need to do or have to do? I get that there's stuff we need to do, but do we have to do it? Because as I said last week, if we don't have to do it, maybe we should reconsider the fact that when we sing a song, I surrender all. Really? What if the Holy Spirit was working today like he was 2,000 years ago? Would we have to pretense, okay, guys, these are the songs we're going to sing today. Call 911 in advance. We're going to be singing, I surrender all. Lord, set a fire in my heart that I can't control. And I, can't. I mean, if we really ask the Spirit of God to move in such a way that what we're asking for is what we're really asking for, would we do it? I can't help but think about how many times in my young life we came to church fighting, completely just getting the kids ready. I mean, we had three kids growing up in that young marriage, and it was a real struggle to get to church. I can totally relate to some of you getting to church. is a real struggle. But man, it was interesting. Every time we walked through the door, whoo, hallelujah, welcome, good to see you. Couldn't wait to get to the stairs, right? Who were we lying to? Were we lying to ourselves? Or were we lying to the ushers and greeters? Or were we lying to God? Were we afraid that someone would recognize that we had problems getting our kids ready and would have no compassion? Rather than just walking up to the stairs and saying, I can't even go in right now. Me and my wife were completely at it before we even got here. Were you afraid that Charlie or one of the ushers or greeters wouldn't say, hey, let's go pray? Let's just ask the Lord to bless you guys. Thank you, thank you, God, for getting them here today. Thank you, God, for being in this couple's life. We, we walk through this adversity they're going through. Help them to reconcile this in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Holy Spirit bring that truth that's so desperate. You know what I'm saying? What are we afraid of by not being willing to face the truth about what the Holy Spirit does? Because the results is, says verse 10, immediately she collapsed and she fell at his feet, and then great fear came over the church. Now, anytime we talk about fear, it's going to be redundancy and redundancy, but this is not fear, okay? This is not fear like, ah, oh, no, something bad's happening. This is fear. This is reverential awe. This is Proverbs 1-7, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Why? Because are you going to let one couple and what one couple has done in the church and what one couple has conspired to do, are you going to let one couple determine the outcome for this entire church? Are they going to be the leaven that causes the entire loaf to be ruined? 
And church, I pray for us this morning that we would not do that. I pray that we would, we would yield to what God's Spirit says and realize that, okay, let's fear the Lord in this whole thing. Let's fear the Lord and ask, okay, Lord, what does it mean if we see you as righteous and maybe stop with some of our righteousness and just say, okay, I'm having a bad day. <clears throat> what does that really affect anyone? It doesn't affect anyone at all. I'm glad that you're here. Because the results of the story substantiate what was done, right? A lot of times you're like, I don't know if I should have done that. Okay, then what was the results of what you did? If you're not sure if you should have done it or not, then, then you can kind of use this rule. The results will either substantiate or deny that you made a good choice about how it comes. Because if the results are the kingdom of God moves on and the kingdom of God grows and the kingdom of God moves in a positive way, then it is what it is because all things are working together, even taking the life of two of the followers of Christ. So let me finish up with how this and the rest of the story. Chapter 5, verse 12. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were continuing to take place among the people. And once again, they were all together in Solomon's portico. Verse 13. And none of the rest desired to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And increasingly, believers in the Lord, large numbers of men, and women were being added by the day, by their number. Verse 15, to such an extent that they even carried the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by them, the shadow of him might fall upon them. Now that's Peter doing what Jesus had done, right? The Shekinah of Jesus. This comes from like the Jewish folklore that Jesus was such a powerful healer, and, and Jesus' Shekinah was so much that as he walked down the streets of Jerusalem, the dust of that posse of people walking down the street would sprinkle up and the dust would kind of be pervasive and falling down after Jesus and the apostles had moved through. And it was said that if you could get into the dust, the Shekinah of Jesus, you would be healed, right? And now they're seeing this in Peter. They're putting their sick out there and they're seeing people healed just by the shadow of Peter going by them. Powerful stuff. And the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together bringing their sick, tormented with unclean spirits, and all were being healed. Church, the results of this tragic mistake in the church was not a disbanding of the first body. It was not the initiation of the first new second Baptist church, right? First Baptist didn't work, now we're going to try second Baptist. This is not the beginning of denominations. This is the beginning of the church realizing that there's a price to pay for sin, and for believers, we have to make peace with it because the result is the church increased in numbers. And no matter what we do, that is one of the high callings on a church. Our job is to increase the numbers of new believers. Go, make, baptize, teach. The results of that, increased followers in Christ, right? It's not just that they died. People are going to die anyways. It's how they died. And what was the results of their death? Is it inspired people to not fear men, because what can man do to you? But fear God and be reminded of who God is and the call that he's placed on our life. It reminded us that everyone was being healed. They weren't just doing single acts. This was like a group healing of anyone and everyone that was coming to them, including people that were oppressed. Okay? Demonic oppression is not just something that's new in our times. Although it is something that exists now, it has existed from the very beginning. And it will, it will exist until the Lord returns. But you only have one tool against it, to be united, okay? 
part of what I'm dealing with with this family is oppression, is they have to be united against that front. If, if, if all of you are not on the same united front, the door will be open on some part of that. And not only will it come in, but the Bible says, if one was in in the beginning, that seven can return. And, the, and the, you know, in the second time around. So this is a serious concern for people. And yet God's using this and healing them. And ultimately what happened to the church? The church was protected from hypocrisy. I don't know about you today, church, but I'm almost done, and I'm excited to get to this final point, but I can tell you one thing. If the church has lost some of our power and some of our teeth today, it's because of how hypocritical we're living. Right? We have just given in to so many different things that the world says we have to be and have to do. Matter of fact, in one of the counseling sessions I had this week, I had to use one of the most powerful phrases that God has given me in 30 years of ministry and counseling, and it's when I have to tell parents and look them in the eye and say, your job is to raise your children under Proverbs 22 in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but being their friend is optional, right? Your job, first and foremost, is to be their parent. Because discipline, if you don't discipline, then you're not loving the child. If you don't have structure, the child doesn't know structure. The child doesn't know why, Right? But candy and hot dogs, I like them. And I've eaten them before and been fine. Okay, but if I let candy and hot dogs be the precedent, and I'm the parent, and I'm the one buying the candy, and I'm the one buying the hot dogs, I'm doing something that's not in the best interest of that child. And now I need to be reprimanded. I need to be reproofed. Your job is not to rot their teeth, rot their stomach, and make them a weak vessel. Your job is to train them up, how Paul said. Paul always uses Greco-Roman terms, grappling. That's kind of one of the things that grappling, people who grapple are Krav uh, Maga. if you guys ever want to look up a crazy sport. People who grapple and grab the gi and do this kind of kung fu, that's, they're not weak people. These are people that are designed to be very forceful, very strong in understanding how the body, that's the kind of, be designed to do work, to do battle. If you don't, you're going to make them weak. So in the end, does God need our money? Need our money? No, he doesn't. He doesn't need it today. He doesn't need it tomorrow. And he won't need it next week. But he allows us to have money so that we can live this life and try to enjoy certain things of this life that require that particular resource. What he does need is that when we do give, to give joyfully. Giving joyfully is not... Whenever I have money, I give it, okay? Tithing and all those other things, I'm not going to turn this into a tithing message because I think it's inappropriate use of a pretty horrific story. But I think what it wants me to tell you this is when you do give, give specifically, okay? You should know what God gives you. You should know why God has given it to you, and then you should give of that joyfully. And people who give joyfully find that giving for things like benevolence, we have a benevolence fund here. What do we do? Well, last year we bought a refrigerator for someone who was putting ice in the refrigerator and calling it a refrigerator. Now, I know in the 50s, that was still a refrigerator. But in the 20s, the 2020s, we call that a broken refrigerator. And we don't call that a refrigerator anymore, okay? That person just had a really good attitude, and they were trying to make the most of it. The church found out about it, called up Home Depot, sent them a refrigerator. I made a few phone calls, called the people who like to donate for that. They loved the story. They didn't know who it went to, and they couldn't be more excited to help bless somebody. 
This week, we offered to buy a transmission for somebody. It didn't work out, but we would have paid a lot of money for a transmission if that's what they needed, because our job as a church is to see the needs of our people and try to address them. Whatever we do, we're going to give it joyfully, not because we have to, but we get to, because God doesn't need our stuff. He needs this. What does God need? He needs us to be holy. If this passage reminds us of anything, it tells us that God needs us to be holy. Now, we of our own volition can't be holy, right? When the Holy Spirit tells us that we have sin and we need to do something with it, what are we going to do with it? We have nothing to do. So thankfully, he gave us the giant plus symbol that we can go to and say, I'm bringing zero. What do you got? Okay, you got, you got that giant plus symbol. Okay, you got something, and I'm giving you nothing, and now together we have everything. Kind of like my initial marriage, right? At $32 to 1000 it worked out really good, right? That's what we have to think about is we don't bring anything to God that he needs. What God needs is us. What God wants is us. When you raise your children, do you need your children to pay rent? No, it's nice if they did, right? But in the end, if your child needed something and you could, wouldn't you provide it for them? Yeah, because what you're after with that child is the chance to be their friend, to be more than just their parent. But it's always optional, Because at the end of the day, if I have my choice, if I have to be your parent and tell you something that could save your life and give you, uh, like the coach that's giving these softball players more than just softball understanding, he's giving them life understanding. If I have my choice, I'm going to choose to be your parent first. So I'm going to ask you to be holy. I know you're going out with this guy tonight, or I know you guys are going out with your friends, but I'm just going to remind yourself, please don't be alone in that situation. Please don't put yourself in a situation. And if you do get in a situation, just call. Because God is holy and God is just, right? With this whole idea of Jesus is loving and God is loving. Oh yeah, 100%. But he's also holy and just. And the fulcrum balances on both of those points. And at any given time, if one's being overweighted and not, he'll say, nope, keep it in check. What else does God need? He needs us to be pure in thought. Now this is a really difficult challenge in the world we're living in today. Holy in and of itself is pretty monumental. But God also needs us to be pure, why? Because we're, we've been, the Bible says that in Christ we're a new creation. Part of what this testimony and the baptism and all about the fun part about sharing with people is you're moving from milk to solid foods, right? You're a new creation in Christ. And some of that old stinking thinking, it goes out the window and new thinking comes in and you're able to see things differently and hear things differently. You're able to do more, spiritually speaking, right? That purity that comes with it says we don't live like how the world lives, Well, but everybody does it, and this is kind of already acceptable. But what's acceptable for everybody may not be acceptable for us, right? We're called to a higher standard. We're called to be examples. We're called to be light in a dark world. The world wants to put a little kibosh on that light, right? Just a little bit of covering on it. And we have to fight that, and we have to say no, right? This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Really? Yeah, that's, that's the song we used to sing. Ultimately, church, what does God need? He needs to be holy. He needs us to be pure, and he needs us to be humble. Okay, that's a, that's a lot, Pastor Jeff, to finish the message with. And these poor guys coming up here getting ready to give their testimony better give fabulous testimonies, because if they're not holy and pure and humble. Hey, I'm just saying the bar has been set here, right? For those of you who came to Christ and they gave you a come to Christ, and then all your problems go away, and then whenever you have a problem, you just pray for God, and if you're about to get in a car accident, you don't even need a seatbelt, you just pray for God. I mean, people have really sold God down the road with what he is and how he works. 
That's just not how I see the people in the church and how the church has existed. It's, it's, a, it's a hospital, a lot of blood, a lot of grime and, and guts, and, and you have to get past that to get to the healing, right? Um, sometimes when my daughter comes home from the hospital, she's a nurse, and she wants to talk about the stuff that she's seen, I'm a little, I'm a little queasy, right? I'm a little queasy about that. But it's different for someone in the field. They see that it's going to be good, right? They see how they're going to... We, we got to do the same thing. We got to get past the blood and guts and grime of kind of life that's dirty and life that's been uncomfortable. Because in God's economy, that can all be healed. But, but there's a scar now, Pastor Jeff. There's a scar. Okay, the scars are all going to be redone. When Jesus comes again and we get the new body, it's all going to be redone. So don't worry about what you look like now. I mean, I got my issues. You got your issues. It's all going to be redone. But if we can be humble about just saying, you know what? I have sin in my life. I'm going to make peace with it. I'm not going to accept it. I'm just going to make peace with it. And instead, I'm going to do one thing. I'm going to go, and I'm going to make, and I'm going to baptize, and I'm going to teach, and I'm going to love the Lord God with all my heart and my mind and my soul. Why? For on these two commands does everything hang. Everything else in life is optional. Those are not optionable for me. That's what I need to wake up this morning and commit myself to. And if we do that, church, the results of that is we have an opportunity to see God move mountains. I mean, spiritually speaking, these testimonies that you're about to hear today are the results of God moving mountains. When I told you last week that every salvation testimony is a miracle, it was only confirmed this week when I got a chance to sit with these two young men and have a chance to hear their testimonies. Matter of fact, one of their testimonies was an actual affirmation of salvation in the class. So John, I'm going to ask you to come up first. You guys would welcome John Hodges up to the stage here. I know that you're uh, getting baptized. You want to turn sideways so my people can see you. You brought some people with you here. They're going to be blessed and encouraged. But uh, why don't you share with the church really quick what happened a couple of months ago. Um, I believe that you had kind of an encounter with the Lord and he kind of spoke something to you. Yeah. Uh, God was right behind me, Jeff. Um, For a long time he was there, following me around, trying to speak to me. And I couldn't hear. You know, it's one thing to hear. It's another to listen and hear. And it, it, it was hard. You know, I spent most of my life running from God. And now, well, last Wednesday, I opened the door to God. That's right. So... <laughs> so. Them in my life, and what what, ha- what happened? Tell them what happened last Wednesday. Well, I lost my mother-in-law last Tuesday, and that sucked. But you know, I'm here, and I opened the door to Jesus, and now He's in my life. Amen. Amen. Yes, John unfortunately lost his mother-in-law, and that was really hard. But when he came in for the baptism class, one of my favorite parts of the baptism class is when I get a chance to ask someone, all right, you're going to stand up in front of the church and give your testimony. Make sure you know when it is that Jesus, you ask Jesus into your life, right? I love that, behold, I stand at the door and knock, because I have that picture in my office. We have to ask him in, right? He's, he's at the door, but we got to ask him in. Have you asked him in? And he's like, not officially. And I'm like, what are we waiting for? He's like, what are we waiting for? And we prayed that prayer of salvation and that thing. And when you were done, what'd you say? Amen. I said, thank you, Father, for coming into my life. You actually said, woo! 
I don't know about you, church, but uh, like I said, every salvation is a powerful testimony. And John has people been praying for him, and now he's praying for other people. So, John, I just want to let you know, powerful testimony. I'm looking forward to baptizing you in a couple minutes, my brother. Thank you for sharing your testimony with the church this morning. Thank you, Jeff. All right, go back there. You can head back to that room. Now I'm going to ask Jim to come up. Jim is also getting baptized today, sitting all the way in the back. You guys know Jim. He's bringing his whole clan with him. You got Michelle. You got big game James. Hi, James. How you doing, bud? Let's go back on this side. Yeah, I'm trying to stay in the light. Sorry, camera. So this is Jim. Jim's been going to church for quite some time. He spends a lot of, you guys see him a lot of times with Michelle and James. And um, he has a very interesting tale of what God provided for him that we learned about last week in the baptism class. Why don't you share with the church how God called you into the light? Uh, so I was raised a Catholic and uh, I was baptized, uh, a baby. And, um, you know, probably thank God for that. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a drug addict and an alcoholic. And I've had very, I've had a, a, a lot of struggles in my life. But um, about six months ago, uh, I am clean and sober, and I have been for quite a while. Amen. <clears throat> but about six months ago, and, and God has been following me my whole life, the same thing, protecting me, following me. I don't know how many times he saved my life, countless times. Um, but about six months ago, I was, I was struggling with my job, and I didn't, I had to lie at my job sometimes, and it just wasn't right. And one day, God put it on my heart, and he basically made me leave my job. And I was driving in my car. I didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what I was going to do. Uh, so I cried out to the Lord. And um, I just I cried out to the Lord and I asked him to forgive me. And at that moment, I knew that God was real. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen. Like, I can't even. It was the warmest, best feeling I've ever had in my life. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, Jim says as he was driving away from the job that he knew God called him to leave, he began to cry and weep and just lose basically control of himself. And he said, I just, I felt like I had no other choice but to call out to God. And church, I don't know about you, but I mean, every testimony has this cornerstone in it is that we're done. We're done running. As John said, I had been running and running and I felt like God was behind me tapping me on the shoulder like, John, John, John. And he just kept running. And Jim, I'm so glad that you said yes to the Lord, and I'm so glad that you're making this profession of faith today, and it's going to be my privilege to baptize you in a couple minutes, and I want to thank you for sharing this testimony with the Lord. Just remind you, like we talked about, it's not going to get easier, right? But it's always going to be worth it. This is going to be one of those beautiful challenges in life that no matter what you face, this is one of those worthy challenges for you to face. So let's go up there and finish what we started and get you in that tank. Head on back. While we get ready, and then we'll join you guys in a couple of minutes here from the tank. Just as a response to those stories and to seeing what God is doing, let's all stand and we'll worship together and we'll give them time to get in there. We're going to sing a song called Goodness of God. I think a lot of you know it. Um, but as they're getting ready, I think it'd be so cool to even declare that and maybe even like have them hear like about how good God is and, um,
being reminded of how good God is through these baptisms. So let's sing this together. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands. From the moment that I wake up until I lay my head, I will sing of the goodness of God. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. I love your voice. You have led me through the fire in darkest nights. You are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. In all my life, in all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. In all my life, in all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. Your goodness is running after, running after me. Your goodness is running after, running after me. With my life linked down, I surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Sing your goodness. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. Your goodness is running after, it's running after me. With my life laid down, I surrender now. I give you everything. Your goodness is running after, running after me. In all my life, you have been faithful. In all my life, you have been so, so good. 
two souls to you and just thank you for the commitment that they've made we pray that this these baptisms would be an honor and a blessing to you father and we pray for the strength that comes from knowing that a life well lived for christ is a great life we pray that the holy spirit would continue to reveal the truth and father may these testimonies being heard here today and as they go out may they strengthen other believers and remind them that if they have not been baptized then why tarriest thou arise and be baptized John, my brother, on profession of your faith in Jesus Christ, it is my absolute joy and privilege to baptize you, my brother, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in death, raised to a new life in heaven. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. We are way old school when it comes to this tank, and I just want to encourage any of you, you're wondering the size of this, I can get a whole family in here, so... Jim, come on up. Let's go. Let's do this. They're down there hugging. All right. If you have your phone in your pocket, we'll both find out in a second. It's going to be very shocking. All right, just pinch your nose and grab your wrist with your pen. Jim, my brother, I'm so glad that you, you too, like John, stopped running. I'm so glad that the Lord has embraced you. You are now a new creation in Christ. And on profession of your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it's my privilege, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ in death, raised to a new life in Him. Congratulations. Well, church, yeah, Caden has one more song for you. I'm looking forward to seeing you across the street. May God bless and keep you. And if any of you have not been baptized, I pray that this is motivation. Fill out that white connection card, and we'll figure it out how to get this tank fired up for you today. God bless. Let's just do one simple chorus together. Um, there's a song called 10,000 Reasons, and we're just going to do that, that chorus part that says, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Um, Worship his holy name. Sing like never before. I think that's the right song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is. Let's sing that together. Just the chorus. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. the voices. So bless the Lord, oh my 
Just a reminder, there's tacos across the street. I think I might join you guys because that sounds amazing. So we'll see you guys over there. Let the light 